Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, the guest and I are going to be speaking about substance use and how to become a substance abuse counselor, as well as how to expand your scope if you are a therapist already and want to learn more about substance use and many other things related to substances. My guest today is Betsy Byler. She is a master's level therapist, LPC, and a mental health therapist in Wisconsin. She is also a substance abuse counselor and a clinical supervisor. After serving as the director of an agency for years, she moved into private practice in 2019 and continued seeing clients for the treatment of trauma and substance abuse. In the fall of 2020, she launched a podcast called All Things Substance, aimed at helping therapists gain the information they need to add substance use to their scope of practice. And her podcast will be in the show notes. She has a lot of great things to tell us as therapists. And if you are a person who is not a therapist and want to learn more about substance use, all the various drugs, um, and all of the things related to substance use treatment, this is going to be the podcast for you. Before we get to the interview, let me tell you a little bit about what I'm up to. I just launched my first online course entitled, For Parents of Young Adults, What Do We Do Now? Essentially, this is a course about working with your young adult or adult child, so sort of parenting adult children. It has six modules, and it's for sale right now on udemy.com, and I have a link in the show notes It also goes over how to navigate the mental health system, addiction issues, boundaries, communication, money, and all the difficult things that parents today are facing with their young adults emerging into the world in a very chaotic time. Also, if you are a therapist and you are wanting to add EMDR therapy to your repertoire, I would encourage you to check out EMDR Training Solutions. I have an affiliation with them, and I am working to become a facilitator for them, but at the current moment, I'm still a consultant in training, very close to becoming a full Amdria consultant, and EMDR Training Solutions and I teamed up so that if you use a code INTENTIONAL, that's intentional, like the show title, you will get $100 off their training, which is already priced below most other EMDR trainings. All right, if you're interested, that will be in the show notes as well. Now, let's get to the interview. Welcome, Betsy Byler, LPC, to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. So I've been excited. We've been corresponding for a while, and I'm excited to hear about your podcast, All Things Substance, and your work uh, with uh, people that have struggled with substance use issues and kind of connecting that with mental health. And uh, it looks like you're educating not only people in the community, but you're educating uh, clinicians as well, which is uh, well needed, especially as the world of substance use and research is ever changing, but also the amount of substances available and different types are changing as well. Yeah, I really have found over the years that we don't as as therapists get what we need in terms of substance use education, 
And there really isn't a good reason for that. I don't think it's any big conspiracy why our programs don't really cover it. It's just that they don't. And I think most of us find out when we're in practice that uh, we're missing things and we have to make it up. It's sort of, you know, you get what you need in grad school. And then when you get into the day-to-day, you find that there's some holes in your education. Absolutely. I did find that in my education as well. I think I only had one class on substance use and it wasn't as comprehensive as I would have liked. So actually in my uh, second position, I was doing about 50% substance use counseling. And so I had to go to a lot of classes on that to learn about it. Uh, There are also certifications people can get as well. Um, I didn't end up getting a CAADC credential, but I did become an uh, adolescent and community reinforcement approach trainer, which is a motivational interviewing type program for adolescents who are using uh, marijuana and alcohol and kind of some of the uh, less lesser of the substances, I guess, in uh, the categories according to the feds. Uh, so I did do that, but it took me a while to really learn about how it affects the brain as well. And I think there's a lot of interesting research out there about that. So I guess I'm just curious, how did you get into, you know, post-grad school deciding to learn about substances and how they affect people? Well, I'm actually in recovery myself and I've been sober since 96, but I didn't find recovery through any of the kind of regular channels. I got sober really early, but that isn't because it wasn't severe. I'm just a a good addict, I suppose, and did everything, um, did all the stuff I was doing all at once. I found recovery through um, getting rid of friends and getting involved in different activities. It wasn't until I was out of grad school that I realized that I had no idea what I was doing in terms of working with people who had substance use, whether it was addiction or they were still in the abuse Um, frame of mind. I had always planned on working with adolescents who are using substances, mainly just because of my own experience. I saw nine therapists in a row until the ninth one, and it wasn't 10 because of who the ninth one was, and it wasn't eight because that guy and I didn't mix. And some of it, I think, was me having attitude, and some of it, I think, was they just didn't know what to do with someone like me. And my ninth therapist was named Betsy. And I I loved her. And I cannot tell you what she said to me. I don't remember. I remember how I felt, though, about her and about feeling like I could talk to her. And so that sort of sparked my thoughts about, you know, I could do this. And so when I left grad school... I went and worked at a residential treatment center for adolescent girls. So it was like a 45-day deal, and the girls there were coming in with some pretty significant substance use issues. And I found that all of the bachelor's level uh, counselors knew way more than I did about treating substance use. And I honestly thought I had kind of dodged a bullet there. I was grateful that I had a chance to learn and that I had kind of a small audience learning, (laughs) seeing me learn. I thought that I was maybe one of the only ones who didn't really know what I was doing. It wasn't until I moved into an outpatient role that I recognized, oh, 
I'm not the only one who had no idea. And I would be in staff meetings and hear therapists say, oh, that's substance use. I can't do that. Or that's not within my scope. And so hearing that you were willing to see about 50% substance use is kind of a big thing because I think a lot of people feel like they aren't equipped or they aren't going to be good at it. And so the trouble is we have a lot of therapists who might miss the substance use or might have to refer out. And it's it's sort of our thing, right, not to want to practice out of scope. Like there's very few things worse than practicing out of scope, except maybe sleeping with a client, right? Like there's really not... That's, that's the worst, but yeah. Right, one of the exactly. Worst. But I mean, if you think about the bad things, okay, breaking confidentiality, um, poor boundaries, and practicing where you shouldn't. And so as I saw these therapists that I worked with who had been in the field a while, had good experience, were decent therapists, have no knowledge in this area, I felt like, okay, people need to know. And so I, when I became the director, I was training therapists and supervising and interns for about 12 years and made it my mission for all of the therapists that worked for me and all of the interns that came through that when they left, they would at least be more competent in working with substance use than they had been previously. I ran a chemical dependency program and a mental health program and ran them together so that we they worked really well together. So that's kind of how I wound up in the substance use space. And it was it was really interesting and rewarding, I think, to be able to feel like we could work seamlessly together, that the programs weren't their own little silos, that the therapists and counselors could talk to each other, that we treated mostly trauma in our mental health program and could work with anyone wherever they're at in their substance use. And also we had access to a medical clinic and so we were able to do Suboxone and work with medical. And so it was a really great program and a really great time. And that ended, I left and did private practice in 2019. Okay. Well, you've had quite a journey. I appreciate you telling me uh, and the audience your story about actually having the struggle yourself um, and, and getting help and then how that inspired you to help others. And I think it's... I do think a lot of therapists are afraid of substance use. And I think also um, it's challenging because when somebody has substance use issues, what we find uh, almost every time is that they also have some other something else going on, whether it be a traumatic experience that be, you know, or, or, or they're self-medicating. Maybe they have anxiety and so they're using drugs or alcohol to help their anxiety or they're helping their depression or, they're just in a very difficult situation at home or in their neighborhood. And so they're self-medicating. And then when you have the drugs and alcohol involved, especially if you don't know too much about it, it can cloud the entire picture of what's going on. So I think clinicians are, are a little bit scared of that um, because it's like, how do you know if you're helping, right? If they're also using this drug or alcohol and which thing is causing this, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's confusing, I think. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people are ashamed about their use. So they don't often want to tell you 
how much, what they're using, how often, because they don't want to hear a lecture from you, which by the way, is never our job to lecture clients on their use or try to, you know, give them a speech or something. But I think that it is, it is challenging. I found it very challenging. Um, but I did find that the training I received for the adolescent community reinforcement approach and motivational interviewing helped me understand how to relate to people um, instead of me, you know, being overly concerned and, you know, crossing boundaries and being like, I'm worried about you or something. Not that I would ever do that, but it's like your instinct, like, oh my gosh, you're using how much cocaine? Like that kind of, that's my back of my brain kind of scared, you know, saying, oh my gosh, this person could die, uh, you know, soon. I, I learned to kind of align with them and, and, you know, say, you know, it's up to you if you want to keep using drugs or not, it's your choice, you know, it's, and if you want to try these programs or whatever, it's all up to you. Here's what I'm here to help you with. I want to help you become happier and healthier. What does that mean to you? What is it? What is, what's important to you? And once, once we worked on that and a bunch of skill taught a bunch of skills and get them uh, and it, it, the person might get helped and connected into the community, which is part of the program, then also they could examine different parts of their life that were making them upset and figure out, oh my gosh, that's why I smoke weed every night because I'm really upset about this. Oh, okay, well, let's talk about this. And then we work on that. And if that issue could get, you know, worked through, whether or not they were in control of the issue or not, it's another matter. But like if they were in control of it, they could change it. If they weren't, they could process their feelings about it. Then it just seemed like naturally people just use less, you know, the harm reduction model. model. For other people... (laughs) The harm reduction model did not work and they would need to, you know, go into a higher level of treatment um, or they'd say like, you know, I just, I need, I need help. Like I need medical help. Like, and they would check themselves into the hospital and things like that because the the substance use addiction um, or the use disorder had gotten to from mild to severe. So uh, that was kind of our approach with that program. And it was very positive. It was like, hey, you know, you can, uh, you know, focusing on self-esteem. What are your strengths? What are your, what are the positive things you like to do? What are, what are your dreams? And when you could, when you could get people thinking about that again, not everybody, but a lot of people, it was just like, oh yeah, well now I've got something to do, something to focus on and maybe some new friends. It was less I needed the drug less. That was for the teens. I think it's a little bit different with adults because (laughs) adults may be in a relationship or in a job they can't get out of. They're in, you know, they've got multiple kids. They've got so many stressors. So it's a lot more, it's complicated. But I I really think that's why it's valuable that you're doing your podcast uh, and to educate clinicians and the public about substance. So because education and knowledge is power. And I think the more we have of that, the more we can help people. And also the more people can learn where is, where is the good help? Where is the right help for me? Who is the right therapist for me? I don't know. But that's just me you know, waxing poetic about what I think about uh, so far, what you're up to. But uh, what, what are your thoughts? I think that, you know, there are a lot of certification programs, certainly a lot of Uh, classes, and you could take lots of continuing ed. And I think that that's really intimidating for a lot of people. All of us who are in practice have productivity concerns, depending on the agency. We have paperwork, we have clients, we have all sorts of things that the idea of adding another thing is really difficult. You could, I think, a person could go on the internet and decide to research for themselves. And 
the trouble with that, I think, is finding accurate information and knowing where to look for it because it could be alarmist. It could be inaccurate on either side, either pro that drug or anti that drug. And that's not the world that we live in. We live in the world of, well, I think anyway, uh, of science and what's accurate if that is available. And so what I've wanted to do is kind of take the guesswork out of that and share with people what I believe they need to know. And instead of them trying to hodgepodge something together, the podcast and eventually courses, um, if I do have a plan to do some courses in the future for people who want more instruction on it, that I feel like I have figured out over 12 years what therapists need to know the basics of it rather than everything. Because honestly, we don't need to know everything. We need to know some basics and the skills that come along with learning about substance use. Some of them are a little different. So maybe motivational interviewing, but it's similar to the stuff that we've already learned how to do. And so what I want to give is information that people can count on as being as accurate as I'm able to make it and as presented in a way that isn't <clears throat> that isn't boring hopefully and that they can know okay so this is what i need to know about meth or this is what i need to know about kratom or weed or whatever the case may be and trying to present that from a perspective that a mental health therapist knows that i know what they're doing every day and that it could be useful for them Rather than, okay, so I need to take some training. What do I take? Mm. Do I attend a training on just opiates? Do I need to know about, you know, opiates, meth? And there's so many different kinds of drugs and classes that it can be really hard, I think, to know where to start. If And especially if you're having nervousness about it. I think that's even harder. And I don't believe that people need a certification unless you live in a state where you have to have one. In Wisconsin, it used to be the case that you had to have a substance abuse specialty or a separate license for substance abuse. And they've taken that away now so that anyone who has a master's level license can do substance work without getting that extra designation. And so what it means is that they don't need to go and pay all that money and have a semester-long class or whatever the case is in order to work in this space. I'm trying to appeal to people who are post-licensed but in the field probably less than 10 years. And I'd love to reach people who have been in the field longer, but I find that some of us who've been in the field a long time get a little stuck in the ways we do things. And so I'm hoping to reach them a little earlier when they're feeling overwhelmed and having that sense of, oh my gosh, like I did not know this was going to be happening. And, you know, even that sense of being an outpatient therapist in the beginning and realizing you're going to get clients all over the age spectrum, all over the problem spectrum, and you have very little say over what's happening. So I want to meet a need and encourage them to start and make it part of something they're capable of doing so that ultimately 
they're better equipped and better help, better equipped to help their clients and not have to refer out at the first sign of substance use. I think that is a very great, admirable task you're taking up. I do believe that it you're you're correct that you 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 do need to know information about the drugs, but you don't need to know everything about the drugs. You kind of just need to know the basics of how they react in the body, what the addiction level is, what the lethality level is. I don't know. This is just my thoughts. I'm not sure exactly what you think people should know, but as long as you know something, right, that can, and then you're able to talk to your client about that, that can help you help them and also assess risk level better versus just referring out. Um, that is sorely needed. I remember I went to a presentation once about, oh my gosh, it was like four hours long and it was all about every synthetic drug ever. And it was like the molecules and what the police do and how they're tracking it and then how we should be aware of this and how this synthetic and that synthetic. And that was in Phoenix. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. This is this is almost like a whole nother career. I'm not detoxing people off these things. I'm glad I know what K2 is, and I'm glad I know what uh, bath salts are, which are not something for your bathtub. Um, I'm glad I know you know all these different weird synthetic drugs and how they're making them. But honestly, like I don't know how this is going to help me. Whereas if I <laughs> go ahead, <laughs> I think that <clears throat> there is so much we could know that. Honestly, we don't need all of that. So yeah, for synthetics, main ones are K2 and bath salts. And I do think we need to know what it is, how prevalent it is, and if it's going to kill you. And, you know, in terms of, yes, of course, we need to know how addictive it is. But as for our job, if someone's using, it does make risk assessing totally different because you have a whole new level to understand what you're dealing with. One of the things I did was create a treatment planning tool that people can download for free that helps assess, like helps the therapist look at a client and think about where they're at, what their needs are, why they're using, and how immediate they how immediate it is that they intervene. Mm. Because in some ways, we don't need to intervene right away. If someone's smoking meth, yeah, that's a problem. It definitely could kill them. And that's not a like level one lethality. Heroin, opiates, 100%. That can kill them this evening, mm -hmm. right? And yes. so that is a different story. And so even though meth is awful and probably I think one of it's, I believe it's probably the worst drug that I think that our issue is Are they going to be allowed to come back to that? As therapists, we don't have time to know, I think, all the things like that. I mean, I think in some of the podcasts, I go in, I talk a little bit about history because there are people who love that. And I might talk, I might talk about where it hits in the brain, but most of it's going to be pretty, I don't know, practical, I guess, of here's what it does. Here's how people use it. Here why that, here's why that's a problem. And... This, these are the risk things that we're worried about here. Eventually, I want to get into doing stuff about recovery and treatment and those kinds of things to try to help flesh that out a little bit. But there's been a lot of drugs to cover. And so I'm still, I mean, I'm near the end of it, I suppose. The math episodes come out. 
um, soon. And then it'll be ADHD meds and steroids. And I'm even going to do, I'm going to do one on CBD. Uh, not that CBD is necessarily addictive, but I think it is in the wheelhouse of things that therapists are interested in. Absolutely. Um, I think that it sounds like that's a very good mission you're on. So you're, you're educating the basics about the drug. And I do think that's one of the most interesting trainings I ever went to that was most helpful was the American Society of Addiction Medicine training. Um, and that training helped me understand, is this client somebody I can see for substance use at an outpatient once a week or twice a week level? Yes. Okay, wait. This drug, this drug, this level use, no. It was very, it was very concrete. Um, and I mean, obviously, they didn't offer that much education about the background of the drug and why and all of that. But for me, I just printed out this chart and I was like, okay, uh, this level of heroin use, okay, I need to definitely refer them to a program that specializes in that, right? But this level of marijuana use, okay, I can take that. Or this level, even the meth. Like you said, meth isn't going to kill you right away, but it destroys your brain and your entire body pretty quickly. Um, and you just die of other things, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it was very eye-opening to me. And it it took took some time to understand it, but I do think that a lot, I, I do see that aversion that therapists have. And I think it's important that we actually help people get more educated, especially a lot of therapists who aren't quote unquote substance use therapists that they don't specialize in that because drugs, uh, one of my mentors said, we're living in the drug age. He said, you know, people think of the 60s and 70s as the drug age. He's like, that's not the drug age. He said, now is the drug age. I mean, more drugs than ever are available. You can get them easier. There are more alcohol available than ever. You know, there, there's, there's people are making things in their houses. I mean, this is like, we are in an unprecedented availability of substances to alter your mind and your body. So, and people are stressed out because of various geopolitical situations, the pandemic, all of these things. And when people are stressed out and they don't know what to do and they're not connected and they're not, you know, they, they what an easy thing to alter your mood or help you feel better is a drug. So we have to understand that as therapists, even if this isn't our favorite thing to work on, this is going to be becoming more and more and more prevalent in um, our work, even with a regular outpatient place that doesn't specialize. Now, obviously, there are places that specialize and they know what to do with heroin. They know what to do with meth. They know what to do with opiate pills. And those are very dangerous substances that need to be taken very seriously, very quickly. And that's good that we have those places. But what about the people that are just drinking too much? And what about the people that are smoking weed too much? And what about the people that are um, taking like Adderall pills and things like that? Like, what about those things? So, there's a lot going on with 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 all of that as well. Um, so that being said, I'm wondering what is something. Is it sounds like you're having a mission to put all the podcasts and then eventually make a course. What is something that's you've been finding interesting lately about your work um, in this field? Uh, is there anything that you've been really passionate about lately that's been catching your interest? <sighs> I am, I've started a new series, two of them actually, uh, that's part of the main podcast. And one of them is bringing interviews of people who are in recovery, who are in our field. 
So therapists like myself who are in recovery and also know how we do our work. And what's been interesting is to hear them talk about their experiences with therapy in a non-therapist way. So they were in treatment or had different therapists that they saw and just hearing what that experience was like and also trying to encourage them that both of these women were saying, I've only done two of these so far, and both of the women said that they don't believe that people need to be in recovery in terms of have been an addict or an alcoholic in order to do this work. Because I think one of the things that people struggle with is they're like, well, I'm not an addict or an alcoholic, and so I don't belong in that space. And Mm. these people who are, are both, one's an addict alcoholic and the other one's an alcoholic, Um, both said that it's not necessary, that we want them in this, in our space. As a person in recovery, I want therapists, even if they're not people in recovery, I want them in this space. They don't need to have that exact experience. I think that sometimes it can be easier, at least at the outset, but it's, there are challenges too. So it's not necessarily a prereq. And so I want to try to give a face to recovery and have people be able to hear these stories. One of the ones coming up is not a woman in our field, but she was a meth addict and is now a federal judge. And I want people to be able to hear her story of recovery and her thoughts about her experiences with therapists, because you're convinced that we live in the drug age. I don't know that everyone's convinced, Mm. right? Okay. If that isn't your world, or if people don't come in telling you right away that they have these issues, I don't even know that all of us are assessing for substance use because I don't know that it occurs to them unless someone, or they ask them like a, you know, just a basic question and then they move on. But I know over my career, I've had a lot of people come through the mental health door, so to speak. And then I find out they have a substance issue and it's secondary. Like they don't, they don't tell me that right away. Most people don't walk in and be like, I smoke weed all day, every day, or, you know, I use cocaine in order to get out of bed or whatever the case may be. And so I think part of it is trying to help, I guess, convince or shed light on why this is their business. Why as therapists, it's our business. It's not just the business of chemical dependency counselors, but that it's in our manual, literally. And just because we didn't learn it doesn't mean it's somehow not our business and not our job. And I want to, I guess, part of it is, why am I telling this information? Why do they need to know? And then trying to encourage people that this isn't as difficult as you might think. And you really, really can move into this space. So that's kind of where I'm passionate about at the moment is trying to find ways to connect with personal stories that give people some hope that people do recover because it is really hard to watch people relapse over and over and trying to, I guess, encourage them that it really is something they can do. That is great. Yes, I do believe that information is well needed. And I do think that 
part of our ethics dictates that we're assessing for risk level. And what is more risky than somebody using drugs and alcohol every day? It's not just about suicide. I mean, suicide and homicide are definitely big risks, and those should be on all of our intakes. But asking a few more pointed questions about alcohol and drugs uh, is a is an important way and is an important thing to do. And also, you know, the style and learning how to ask it in a way that doesn't cause someone to be so defensive. I mean, not that we can control their defense, but that we could ask it in a way that sounds non-judgmental and so they know that we're you know we're aligning with them and and again you're right i mean not everybody wants to tell you uh, but i what i what i've heard a lot uh from just people in the medical field uh that you know doctors is that and i've seen this with clients as well is that a lot of people have been misdiagnosed due to their substance use so for instance um uh, people that have been in manic states may have actually taken hundreds of milligrams of Adderall and driven themselves into a manic state and are in a manic state, yet the doctor doesn't have this knowledge that they're on Adderall. And so the family is thinking, oh no, we just have a bipolar case in our family. Darn, like we, we better start medicating them for bipolar. And it's like, hold on there. Do we know that they recreationally use Adderall and cocaine and meth and that I've seen that more than once um, mm-hmm. in my own, you know, trajectory of what I've what I've seen, and so it's a it's a tough issue. But I do think that we as therapists have to take our ethics uh, seriously and make sure we know things because it is in our scope. And yes, if you're afraid of it or you don't know what to do, you should refer out. But what could you do with people in your practice that are appropriate for outpatient treatment? You could possibly change their life if you're willing to do a little bit of extra uh, education on this. Um, so I think for therapists, we want to inspire them to do this. And um, I think I think another important thing to talk about would be recovery. So uh, are you okay delving into a little bit about why what is recovery and, and why is that important and what does it even mean in terms of the brain and and, and the body and, and people. So I think there's a difference, you know, we talk about being sober and that there's a certain connotation to that. I want to, so I am a abstinence-based recovery person in my personal life. I do not, I cannot moderate. It is not in my DNA and recovery is a spectrum and a process. And so I don't, require abstinence for everyone and their brother, right? Like it's it's not my job to define for them what recovery is. There are certain realities about addiction that makes moderation difficult for, I believe, true addicts and alcoholics as opposed to those who have abused substances and struggle with it. And so what I mean is that if someone has... If someone drinks and they get to the place where they're drinking and they're starting to get withdrawal symptoms, that's a problem and that's not normal. Uh, typically, I'll just say that's not typical, but it's that's not an normal experience. I happen to live in a place where drinking is super normal. In fact, you can take your teenager to the bar and they can drink. And I've had a 15-year-old client of mine go on a bachelorette bar crawl. And got hammered drunk. And that's super normal here in Wisconsin. 
Oh my. And they get very touchy if you comment on drinking. If you, I think Newsweek a couple of years ago had like top 10 party schools and like six of them were in Wisconsin. So, but people who've grown up here, they don't know that their drinking is not normal. Anyone who moved here from a different state though is like, oh yeah. I mean, it's not like we don't have drunks in Chicago where I grew up, but it's not like this. And so it's, it's a really, it's a really different experience. And so we're treading really carefully when we ask people about their drinking, first of all. That means that if they're going to get into recovery and if they're not able to moderate, there are a lot of challenges for that, especially with men, because it is hard for men to join together as easily as it is for women. So for instance, I could be in a park just, I don't know, looking at my phone. I could see another woman and strike up a conversation and I could ask her to lunch, and that's not weird. But there you go. <laughs> if a dude is in a park and sees another dude and walks up to him and asks him to go to lunch, like, that's not typical. And men have a harder time. And I think especially in cultures like where we are in the North Country, it's just harder. Because if they're not going to church and they're not going to the bar and they can't, you know, it's not about... Um, like the sports and hunting and all those kinds of things, they have a hard time finding recovery because it means they can't hang out with pretty much anyone. Eventually, you can hang out with people who are using if that's something that you want to do. But in the beginning, it's super hard. And so when we're talking about recovery, sometimes we're talking about harm reduction, which is not abstinence-based. So somebody who's going to try to moderate their drinking or their use of weed or pills or whatever. I mean, there are things I don't I don't believe can be used recreationally permanently. Someone might be able to use them recreationally for a time. I've had plenty of people tell me that they use meth recreationally and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, I don't know about that." Um and eventually it's not recreation anymore. It's all the time because that is the nature of addiction is that it's progressive and it gets worse over time always. So when you're talking about getting clean, what we're doing as therapists is we're helping them evaluate the substance's role in their life and if it's causing them problems. Some people feel like their use of weed is not a problem. And it might not be. Weed is not the worst thing on the planet and it's probably not going to kill you. And being emotionally disconnected all the time is not engaging in life. And so I just start really simply by saying, all right, so how often do you smoke weed? How many times a day? And I'll say, okay, so when you come to appointments, I don't want you to smoke within four hours of coming to see me. And it is not because I'm upset about it or have any opinions about it. It's because I need you emotionally present. And that's a pretty good time frame. And so if that means that you smoke first thing in the morning, then you need to make like a noon appointment. Or if you can wait, then you come in. And so that's just the beginning of kind of planting that seed of being stoned all the time isn't the same as living just life. It's different. It's mood altering. And I'm not making a judgment about it. I am trying to say, is this something that you're happy about? 
because what happens when someone gets into recovery is they realize how incredibly stressful it is to use. It's the same way if somebody quits smoking cigarettes, they realize how much time and energy they used to spend thinking about when they could smoke, do they have cigarettes, can they buy them, how are they going to smell, where can they do it, do they have time between this and that. I mean, it's, it's pretty stressful, actually. And that's kind of the beginning of helping them, helping our clients imagine what life might be like if their emotions were under control and they didn't have to use this stuff all the time. Then we're finding out what they want to do about that because we are always in step with them and not trying to push or pull them in a different direction. And we're just watching. What I think for us is we are helping them find what recovery means for them. And if they want to try moderation, I think my responsibility as a therapist is to help talk about what that would look like and what how will we know if it's working or not. And if it's not working, then we need to talk about what to do next. Because it's not my job to convince them that they're an addict or an alcoholic, and it's not my job to convince them that they need abstinence-based recovery. I am really blunt and pretty straightforward with my people, and they come to me because that's apparently their gig too. And so I will be pretty straight up if I think that it might I'll say, I don't know that this is going to work, but I I think you could try. What do you think would help you be more successful at that? And we come up with ideas and talk about it so that it's not them wanting to avoid me because they didn't do what I said, you know, because our clients will do that. Well, I didn't do what you said. Well, I just suggested it. I don't have a requirement for you to do that. So I think the... For us, the role in recovery is not defining what it is going to be, but helping that person define what it would look like. And very often, their view of recovery is going to change from beginning to where they end up. Because in the beginning, it's terrifying to let go of a substance you're using. It feels like you're losing your best friend. And there's so much anxiety about that that they might be willing to give just a tiny bit, make some tiny changes. And you just tell them, okay. I I mean, I had a guy come to me who, you know, very classic um, Northern Wisconsin sportsman, does hunting and fishing and all sorts of, you know, watches lots of sports and uh, spends a lot of time in a bar. And his drinking was getting out of hand and he'd gotten in some arguments and was having marital issues. And he would say, well, I drank this week. And he would say it with some shame. And I would like, I was like, dude, you didn't tell me you wanted to quit drinking. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't. And I'm like, I just want to know how it's working, what, whether you feel like you were able to handle it. How do we know when it's too much? Because I have, you know, I want to know because it helps us to talk it out. But like, there's no shame in that. You didn't say I'm not going to drink this week. And so it was, it's sort of um, getting away from that kind of shame that they think we're going to have. Like we're the, like we're the super ego, right. That's going to tell them that they're wrong and, you know, shame them for things. And that's on our, that's not our job or our nature. Most of us anyway, but I think if we can face that recovery, isn't, 
recovery is a lot of things and can be achieved in many ways that it frees us as therapists to just walk alongside somebody and give them maybe some ideas, but we're not trying to get them. You have to go to AA or NA and you have to have an abstinence-based recovery or else might as well not even try. I like that. So, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're really trying to meet the person where they're at in recovery. Uh, We're never going to try to blame them or shame them. We may use education, but we're also kind of, asking permission and just trying to find out information. So like you said, addiction gets worse always. Um, you know, that is because of the brain science, which is a, probably a whole nother episode about mm-hmm. how the brain gets used to things and then becomes dependent on things, right. Versus just entertaining them. And, and, and the chemicals and drugs are highly attractive depending on which drug, but like you said, marijuana isn't necessarily as addic- like addicting like meth, but the addiction of being emotionally disconnected is an addiction, you know, because it helps you emotionally disconnect. And um, it was interesting to me how uh, one of the things you're looking into with people that have an addiction is there's something going on with them. Not all, Not everybody's the same, but let's just say that sportsman, like he may just be involved in the culture And because the culture involves a lot of drinking, the next thing he knows is he's drinking more and more and more and more. He may not have really thought about that much because he's in a culture that already drinks a lot. And so what you're kind of asking him to do is just think about it a little bit more in depth, right? Um, Which if the weird part is when when somebody's using and they kind of have a feel, you know, if we talk about the multiple parts of a personality. There's so many different parts of our personalities, which is, you know, there's trauma theory on this and whatnot. Part of his personality, part of his thoughts on this might be like, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't drink so much, right? Something happens. But then there's another part of it that's like, I really need to drink a lot because of this. You know, there's these, uh, this ambivalence about drugs and alcohol. And so you're just trying to explore it. And it's interesting that he was like, kind of like, he didn't even get defensive, but he kind of got a, he thought you'd be disappointed in him and because you're trying to help him. And he knows that probably I'm assuming he knows that he didn't help himself very well this week because he was drinking all week and he comes into you and he's like, well, no progress. In fact, I'm probably worse off than I saw you last week. He's sort of admitting it, but then he's like waiting for you to be disappointed because I'm assuming he's projecting the fact that other people in his life are disappointed on him or at him. And so, you know, our role is to kind of really help, use that communication skill and that reflection skills we have because if you help somebody figure out what their drug use is how much of it is going on how often what is it affecting them if you can help them think about that when they're not in a triggered state they might be able to just figure out their own recovery right but like you said recovery doesn't happen in a vacuum we need community we need people like-minded people and you know they say and all these you know if you turn on television they say you know, your earnings and money are affected by the people you hang out with. Like that's a popular topic. Well, the things you eat are also affected by the people you hang out with. The things you do are affected by the people you hang out with. The things you believe, the, 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 uh, possibly who you vote for. Um, so, of course, alcohol and drugs are going to be affected by who you hang out with and who you're spending time with and what their values are because that rubs off on us even if we have this vision of ourselves as some sort of, oh, I don't. I don't listen to people. I make my own choices or whatever. It's sort of a male, male thing, but <laughs> I'm not trying to stereotype males and females, but culturally speaking in the Midwest, you are pretty much hitting the nail on the head in most in general sense. Um, and so 
the that idea of just sort of getting into what is actually going on can actually be freeing for a person. Uh, but then again, again, we do need that community. I mean, most people need a community to have strength because if you're fighting your own brain, your own brain and body is saying, we need this now, we need this now, we need this now. It's sending you those signals that are unconscious. You do need, <laughs> we need more than just, I, I always tell the people that I'm working with that use substance, I said, honestly, here's the deal. I'm working with you because like, I believe according to American society of addiction medicine, this is, we can work on this and outpatient. And I know about this drug and I know about this alcohol and I understand why you're using, you've told me, but I honestly think also you might want to try out smart recovery or you might want to try out NA or AA on the side because getting that social support is so much more valuable than, well, not more, but it's so valuable as, a, as in, instead of just depending on me for one hour a week, right? That's, you can feel better for me with me but then even even if we're getting some root causes but if you don't have that support and it's saturday night and you're feeling lonely and depressed and you don't have anywhere to go like you're not connected to the community where do you go to the using friends so um it, it is it's a different path than we go with clients who come in with no substance use issues but the path is not it's not different it's a different path at first right we have to cover that because it's such a huge aspect of what's going on with the person. But then the path always leads to the same issues, usually. What I mean is um, how we help people. It, it's just a different thing to add on. It's a different skill. So anyway, those are my thoughts about that. I think that having the community of other people, there's something really healing about hearing your story in someone else. And sometimes it can shed light on what's going on with you, but it's also really freeing in terms of not feeling shame. I've worked with a number of people who didn't know they had an issue and came in because they were depressed or had trauma or whatever, and they'll tell me something they did, and then I'm able to say, well, that's actually sort of normal when somebody's been using, and they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, it's it's not new. You know, it, it they're all, the stories are generally the same. The details and the people and the severity is different, but there is something mm, freeing about not feeling like a deviant because you've done stuff while you were using or you've been using and just normalizing that and being around people who have been through different triggers and struggles and I've figured out a way out of it and who really do know what you're talking about. So even as a therapist who isn't in recovery, I think that is a thing that they may find is super helpful on the outside. And there are things that aren't necessarily AA and NA if people aren't into the God thing. And, you know, there's like smart recovery, there's online, there's a, a community that I'm part of called She Recovers. And there's, I mean, there's lots of different things all around health realization where people are working on health related goals and getting free from things and they're not praying and because that people struggle with that and it's different depending on which group you go to some AANA groups are less mm, religious-y than others um, but it just sort of depends on where you are and who's leading those groups because they're all peer run but I definitely think that those are super helpful in recovery people can do it Otherwise, but 
it's isolating. And I think it's helpful to be able to have those available. I agree completely. I think that there's a lot of healing and coming together. And because while a lot of people start using with friends at first, oftentimes in moderate to severe addiction, you're using by yourself also. And or, you know, classic example, you're drinking several drinks before going to the bar alone. You know, you're smoking marijuana before going to smoke marijuana with people. You're doing meth on your by yourself in your apartment. I mean, it gets lonely because the substance use takes over because of the brain reward system. So I definitely think, and I also think, you know, a lot of people, it's, it's, it's hard to go to those groups and maybe hear something you don't want, but there's so many groups that you'll be able to find your group online. And if you can't find it in person and, um, but in larger cities, there's so many recovery groups that you'll be able to find your flavor. And, or like you said, now, thanks to online, we have all these things online as well. And there's so many different types of them that I think people can hopefully not be turned off just by one experience or whatever. Um, yeah. And I think as, you know, that, that brings me to another thing, uh, therapists needing to, you know, if you're outside of a clinic needing to have a peer support group to talk about how we help people and kind of continuing, if you don't have a supervisor, you know, I, I supervise a lot of people and we do groups and things like that. But if you, there's some people that have moved down with their full license and they don't have a supervisor anymore. And so it's like, okay, how do you stay in touch with other clinicians so that, you know, you catch things, not only therapeutically, but also in the substance use uh, world. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I have, um, uh, I'm not even sure how to put it. I have really strong opinions about supervision and have gotten into conflict with um, a former boss of mine over whether or not fully licensed therapists needed supervision or not. And they wanted it. Uh, my therapist would get cranky if I had to cancel their supervision because they just wanted that hour every other week or whatever it is just to have my time and to talk about whatever. And there wasn't a real structure. I do reflective supervision and it's because that's more my style. Um, But I feel like even those of us who've been in the field, I've been in the field 18 years and I had a supervisor that I did supervision with twice a month and I loved it. And I felt like it made me feel supported. I felt like I had someone who I could trust. I really trusted her opinion clinically, even though she was a child and family therapist, which is very different from what I do. But I really feel like supervision is incredibly important. And so if you don't have supervision, then having other peers, other colleagues that you can talk to and will talk to, I think it's huge. And if you don't have it, you kind of don't know what you're missing. If you had it before, you recognize it when you don't, because that's really hard. But I, um, I've i had supervision up until a year ago, every year, every month at least. And it's just because of what we do that can be really difficult and isolating. And so I think especially if we're moving into an area that is a little new for us. Like when I trained in EMDR, we did consultation group for a year 
And I had individual and group consultation for EMDR with an EMDR certified therapist so that I could be checking in and saying, am I doing this right? Is this really what I'm supposed to do or how do I handle this? And I definitely needed it. I wouldn't train in EMDR for years because I thought it was a bunch of voodoo magic. And I was like, I'm not doing this. This is too woo-woo for me. And what I found out is that I had clients that needed more than what I could do. And their trauma was too severe and I needed more. And the research is really solid. And so I went through training, but I definitely needed that consultation. And I think with anything we're learning that's new, having that consultation is helpful. I think as therapists who have our full license, that can be challenging. Now, I know in Michigan at one point, you had to have supervision forever if you were a master's level therapist. Is that still true? Um, I believe that is for limited licensed psychologists. For LPCs and LMSWs, you do not. But you are held accountable that if you're doing something out of your scope or you're messing up, it's on you. So you might as well get continuing education and supervision <laughs> because, you know, you could drift from protocol and everyone does if you don't, I mean, not, not necessarily in a large way, but you might drift a little bit. Um, I've mm-hmm. been, I've been doing EMDR since 2009 because I was in Arizona where it was much more prevalent than it is here in the Midwest. Um, and, uh, now, and then I went through to become M. EMDR International Association certified, and now I'm becoming a consultant and um, all of that. Uh, but even even by you know teaching it, uh, I I learned that I was like there was I mean I'm teaching basic protocol and I, I know a lot of advanced stuff too. But I was we were doing a group the other day and I and I it was just a minor thing and I had it wrong. I was like, oh yeah, when you go back to this thing, you only ask these questions. You don't need to ask all of these questions. And it, it was something so minor that it wouldn't actually probably hurt a client's experience at all. But I was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that. And I'm the teacher here. So it's like important to <laughs> it's important to review stuff because you you know, you want to combine your your personal style with the way you do EMDR and the way you do substance use therapy. But once we need to get that, we need to get those reminders of, oh, that's right. You know, there was a little detail I missed there. And that because that's important for our um our clients and our of course our development as well. So uh it's it's just like recovery, I think therapy, becoming a therapist and going to therapy is also a process because um there's no perfection in it. It's, it's, you know, you keep getting better, uh, you know, the more you work on it and with clients, you know, if they keep coming to therapy and they're willing to do some work on their own, whatever that is, they're going to get better too. Um, in most situations. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess those are my thoughts on that. I, I do much, very much enjoy the colleagues, uh, peer supervision groups. It is. I really do enjoy them too. And if you are honest about, I, kind of that this is how I feel. Like, I'm honest, if I have a kid that I want to adopt, I'm not going to do it, but it doesn't mean that I haven't met a kid that I'm like, oh, and I'm just honest about it because I want my friends and colleagues to, if they hear me doing something that might be a little, like, I want them to tell me and know that, like, I am not immune. You know, I I am a mom. I feel things about the teenagers that I work with. And once in a while, I meet one where I'm like, oh, I just want to take this kid home. And 
I think it's okay to talk about that with our peers. I think too, with learning, remaking, sharing, making sure that we're learning the right things. people can go to because I have re-researched all of that, right? Did I say that right? And then I'm going, okay, this is going to go out in the world and I need to make sure I have this right. Otherwise, somebody's going to definitely correct me and tell me that it's not correct. Side note, I think my audio or my internet was funky. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. So real quick, um, well, I'm going to do a little snap edit. Okay. So hold on. I need to see this on the audio. Okay. Could you go back right after the adoption comment? Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I think my internet went sideways. So yeah, that's, um, so you just had talked about wanting to adopt kids and we call that counter transference. So right. if you could just go from there. Yep. And I'm not immune to wanting to make a kid's life better. And even though I have had a lot of practice over 18 years of keeping my professional distance and making sure that I am not overstepping, that doesn't mean I don't have those thoughts and that I am never going to have that. And so I try to be honest with my friends to say, I am struggling and I'm super mad at this parent and I really love this kid and wanting to make sure that I am acting in a way that is in their best interests. and. That's part of the reason I love having colleagues and and supervision to be able to do those things. When you were talking about learning things and going back and, you know, sort of the EMD protocol, like what the basics are, when it comes to the episodes, even though I know this stuff, I've gone and re-researched all of it because I have to make sure it's right. And that's what I'm offering to people is that this stuff is accurate and if it's not, that's not helpful <laughs> for people. And so it's as accurate as I know how to make it. And wanting it to feel like the therapists can trust me, that I'm not coming from a specific agenda unless I tell them I am. Because I'm really clear about this is opinion. This is fact. Here's my bias. So that they know where I'm coming from. And because I think that... As therapists, once we get fully licensed, we're kind of on our own a lot of times. And there isn't always a sense of community in every agency or in every job. Um, I think there's just a lot there. <laughs> and so I've enjoyed making sure that I'm relearning, even though it can be kind of a pain at times because it's a lot of work. But I I feel better knowing that it's correct and that I can be confident about it so that so that the therapists don't have to be, I don't know, checking everything. They can just listen and not feel like they got to question everything I say. Well, I think that is a, a quite a gift you're giving to therapists, and that's in your podcast, All Things Substance. And that can be found pretty much anywhere, right? It's yeah, all Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or on my website. Excellent. Yes. And so I think that is also another thing you said struck me about your communication. 
as as the mental health experts, we do have facts, but we also have opinions based on our experience. And I think differentiating those not only for colleagues, but for clients and say, hey, this is what I know about this. Here, do you want to know my opinion? Now, of course, on the podcast, you are giving us your opinion because we do want your opinion. But for a client, right, do you want our opinion? I, I, ha- I had that the other day where I, it's a motivational interviewing thing called you know, asking permission. And I, re- I realize that sometimes our clients don't want our opinions. But when I, when I ask, hey, do you, would you like to know what I think about this based on my experience? I often get, well, yeah, actually I would. Um, and that can be really helpful. So I love that you're doing that in the podcast is that here's, here's the facts about this drug. Okay, here's my opinion about how we work with it. And I think that's very valuable because everyone's going to have a little bit of a different approach on um, maybe some techniques that they use with different people. Um, but I think I think the project you're working on right now with this podcast and eventually making these courses is admirable. And I really hope that the listeners, uh, we get a lot of graduate students listening to this show, will check out your podcast, All Things Substance, and maybe even decide to get into that as part of their specialty. Um, I have one thing for the students. I am doing another series as part of it that's a student edition. And I'll be addressing things like licensing, internships, boundaries, productivity, agency stuff, things that I feel like it would have been nice to know (laughs) when we started. Um, The first episode is uh, what's it like to be a therapist? And that'll come out very soon. Um, And it's, it's really just a response of questions that I've seen all over from students and things that they want to know. And I think about what we all have figured out about this field now in our careers that I feel like I know it's my opinion, but here's an opportunity to hear from someone who's done this a while that this is what it's like. So I uh, I love that these are available for students. I wish they had been when I was in school <laughs> um, because that was a little bit like, you know, the blind leading the blind for each of us, I think. Um, but, uh, so I'm glad to hear that there are students, um, on yours as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm very grateful that we have these podcasts now. And that actually helped me in my career, uh, because back when I graduated graduate school, there weren't hardly any podcasts on the air. They had just sort of started coming out. And, uh, then I got into some psychology podcasts around 2000. 2010. And it really helped me uh, learn a lot. But then also, oh, I should read this book. I should read this book. I should go to this training. And it was so helpful, you know, because sometimes we used to just have to wait for the conferences and the continuing ed to come through town. But now you can learn about this stuff and brush up on it as you go. So I'm really excited about our field. I think, of course, it does come down to, are you taking advantage of all the resources out there as a a therapist? Um, But I think, that is up to each individual therapist. And I think, you know, the clients and outpatient uh, private practice will bring their business to people that are doing that. And uh, I'm hoping that if this is your career, that you've made this also your lifestyle. So we can, we're always learning and learning is uh, the key to all this. And I think I've learned a lot just from talking to you, Betsy, about uh, just how to approach substance use and and just uh, having this very kind, non-judgmental attitude can is is one of the biggest factors to I think helping people who are facing 
substance use issues. Um, so I want to really thank you for talking about that. I was curious, um, is there something you want the listeners, could be students, could be just any you know people out there that are interested in psychology to know? Is there anything you kind of wanted to say? I want to say that probably more people are using than we think they are, because sometimes I assume that too. Even doing what I do, I'll think that somebody is, oh, they're not using, and then I find out they are, uh, whatever it is. And so it really is okay for you to ask. You just have to set it up kind of the same way you would ask about suicidality, that we just preface it and that you really can ask and that you are needed in this space, that our clients really do need us to be competent in this area so that we can work with them on all things. And just because we didn't get it in school isn't a sign that we shouldn't. It's just school teaches us what it teaches us. And the rest is kind of up to us. And so I I would encourage you if you have interest, but feel kind of nervous about what to do, check out what I'm doing or check out local um, continuing ed or at your local university and you can get the information you need and it's not going to be another 50 grand or even, I don't know, a few grand even. <laughs> I think all of us have quite enough when it comes to the student loan thing. Right. I, yes, we do. And I, yeah, that's an excellent point. There is a lot of free or nearly free information out there. And then if you're really invested, there's a, the trainings are well worth um, the small amount of money you'll be paying to get in uh, to those trainings. Um, and I think it, it's important because like we said, I think more than ever, we're going to be, unless something changes in our world, um, definitely facing more and more people that are having difficulties with addiction. Um, and so, yeah, that's part of the future. So as a therapist, I think being well-rounded in that is important. Um, yeah. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to definitely put all of your information in the show notes so people can check out your podcast. They can check out your website, see what you got going on. Um, keep in touch with you. Um, are there any other resources you think people should be getting into? Any other special, you know, places that you like to link people up to? Mm, NIDA has some kind of the most accurate information as well as like SAMHSA. And I have, so those links are, you know, it's samhsa.org. They have, or .gov, I think. They have a lot of good stuff or ASAM, which is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Uh, every show note of mine has links to different things. So if you need that, um, and I guess if, even if you're not fully into this space, uh, if you go to my website to resources, there's a treatment planning tool that you can download and it helps with case conceptualization and doesn't cost anything. I just want you to be able to have a guide to kind of help you think about where should you intervene and when or if in that for that matter. I like it. And all that will be available in the show notes. And so, uh, Betsy, I really appreciate you coming on the show, The Intentional Clinician. It's been my pleasure to have you on and keep up the excellent work. Thanks so much for having me. And the snow is falling.
And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with your host, Paul Kraus. I surely enjoyed my talk with Betsy today, and I hope you did as well. I'm definitely going to be checking out her podcast, All Things Substance, and checking out her website to see when her courses are finished, because there are a lot of things about certain drugs that I think that I would love to study again and find out how they might be affecting certain clients and or people I know. So a lot of good information in there. If you are looking for an Emdria consultant, I am now an Emdria consultant in training and can provide 15 of the 20 hours needed to become Emdria certified. You can find out more by emailing me or checking out my website, counselingsupervisorgr.com. If you're in need of counseling, don't hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based upon literature they have read and their experience in the field, they should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on this or any other subjects. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please call 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741. That's 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know that you could support your local bookstore by shopping on www.bookshop.org? That's right, you can support your local brick-and-mortar store by shopping online. As you know, I just released my first online course for parents of young adults. If you know somebody who is struggling with their young adult relationship, this may be the course for them. It is quite affordable and full of a lot of information that I have gained in the last 14 years of practice. I'll have the link for that in the show notes. Remember, if you are a therapist trying to become EMDR trained, check out EMDR Training Solutions. And if you use my code INTENTIONAL, you'll get $100 off your first training. If you are a therapist and you are not involved in your local therapist group, such as the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association or Arizona Counseling Association or one of the other counseling associations, please join and at least pay the dues. This will help increase the availability of quality mental health services statewide in education for the public, promoting best practices, and most importantly, working to keep licensed professional counselors and other mental health professionals accessible by the public. There are a lot of troubling political things that happen with our licensure as therapists and money and Medicare and all of these difficult things with insurance. And honestly, we need your help, even if you just pay the dues, to make sure that our profession continues to have quality counselors getting trained, is able to be reimbursed by insurance, is able to be supported by Medicare, which it's currently not, and other things so that we can actually start integrating mental health services and prevention into doctor's offices and schools and other things like that. There is a lot of work to be done, and it can't just be done by private practice counselors sitting in their rooms isolated from each other. So please join your local organization. This has been Paul Krauss the Intentional Clinician Podcast, and I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week.